Father in heaven, we are choosing to follow the leader, and you are our leader. We ask, Lord, that as we take a few moments to thoughtfully reflect upon the closing scenes of Jesus' life, Father, please send your Holy Spirit to speak words of life to our hearts, to apply it just where it needs to be. Lord, we want to see Jesus, and we want to be like him. Speak to our hearts now, Lord, we ask. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our theme Bible passage in this Bible study together has been Revelation chapter 14, where we have been looking at one of the characteristics of God's last day people, uh, described in Revelation 14 and Revelation 7 as the 144,000. This group of people are described in various characteristics But we've been zeroing in on this one particular characteristic where the Bible tells us that they are a group of people who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are so fixated on the Lord and where He is going that they do not let Him out of their sight. They follow the Lamb both in the good times and in the trying times. There is nothing that breaks their vision from following the Lamb wherever he goes. I want to be part of that group. Amen? Now, it's interesting. You might find this interesting. We haven't really zeroed in on this too much. But this word follow here is the same Greek word that is used to describe the following of Jesus' disciples. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 20 and 22, the Bible says, And they straightway or immediately left their nets and followed him, talking about Peter and Andrew, leaving their nets and following after Jesus. And then in verse 22, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him, talking about James and John. And the word follow there, it literally means to join as one's disciple or to become his disciple. And so as these men left their nets, they left their ship, they left their family, and they followed Jesus, they were becoming disciples of his, following him wherever he went. So the same thing is true with God's people in the last days, the 144,000 who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, they are becoming disciples of Christ, observing him as their example of how they ought to live their lives. How many of you want to be a disciple of Christ? Amen? I want to follow him as Peter, James, John, all of these disciples follow Jesus wherever he went. Now, as I mentioned already, we are in the midst of the trials of Christ. We've looked at four of them. There are six trials that Jesus went through, just as a little refresher here. There are three trials that he went through that were religious, three trials that were civil. The three trials that were religious, the verdict was guilty. The three trials that were civil, the verdict was innocent. The religious leaders 
we're condemning Jesus on the basis of blasphemy that he, as a man, was claiming to be the Son of God. Now, of course, he was the Son of God, so he wasn't being blasphemous in that claim. However, when they brought them into, brought him into the civil court of Pilate and then Herod and then Pilate again, each time in that civil court system, they did not find anything that was worthy of death, even though the outcome of these trials was that Jesus was condemned to death. These last two trials, I like to refer to them as the silent trials of Christ. The first four, Jesus spoke in all four of those trials. The last two, he is silent like a lamb being led to the slaughter. And so now we're going to turn our attention to the next trial of Jesus. We're going to Luke chapter 23. If you would turn there with me in your Bibles, we're going to look at the trial that Jesus had before Herod. Luke chapter 23, and we're going to pick this up. Well, we're going to start in verse 12 here in just a moment. As you probably know, Pilate was vacillating between whether or not he would condemn Jesus to death. He looked at him, he was, in his mind, Jesus was innocent. But the crowd was crying for him to be crucified. And so he wasn't quite sure what to do. And so what we find is that when Pilate found out that Herod was in town and that Jesus was a Galilean, he decided that he would shove the responsibility off from himself and let Herod be the one who ultimately made the decision whether or not Jesus was to be condemned. Now, you probably know this, but the Bible tells us here in verse 12 of Luke chapter 23, and the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. They had a rift between themselves. And, and Pilate hoped that over the trial of Jesus that they would be able to heal this rift between these two political leaders. And in fact, that's actually what took place. The two magistrates were made friends over the trial of Jesus. And so Pilate was shoving the responsibility off. He was kicking it down the road, if you will, and wanted Herod ultimately to be the one who made that decision. Now, you probably already know this, but just for the sake of clarification, Herod, the one that Jesus was soon to stand before, this was the same Herod who took the life of John the Baptist, that greatest of prophets, the one who... Herod himself knew that he was innocent, that there was nothing wrong with him. Even though uh, John the Baptist gave him stern rebukes, rebuking his sin, he did not want to ultimately put him to death. But as you know, there was the uh, promise that was made and and the dancing that took place and all of that stuff. And so he had to uh, come through with the promise that he made. And so, yes, he cut the head of the greatest of prophets off his shoulders as a gift to a sensual dancer who danced before him. This was the same Herod that Jesus was to stand before in trial. Now, notice what the Bible says in the 23rd chapter, verse 8 and 9, the Bible says this. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he was desirous to see him, and he uh, desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him and hoped to have seen some miracle done 
by him. In fact, Herod was so happy to see Jesus that he commanded that he be loosened. All this time, Jesus' hands had been bound together as a prisoner, even though he hadn't been condemned legitimately. He commanded that he be loosed from his bands. Herod was excited to be in the presence of Jesus. In fact, it says this in the book Desire of Ages, page 729, looking with compassion into the serene face of the world's Redeemer. He read in it only wisdom and purity. He, as well as Pilate, was satisfied that Christ had been accused through malice and envy. Herod was happy to see Jesus. But he was happy to see Jesus because he wanted to be entertained by the miracles that Jesus performed. He did not, he was not happy to see Jesus as his savior. He was happy to see Jesus as some means of satisfying his curiosity. And I wonder to myself if sometimes we have something in common with Herod. Is Jesus a means of entertainment for us? Something that we do on the weekend and in the morning throughout the day to fill up our time, make us feel good? Or are we interested in Jesus because he is our savior from sin? That's not what Herod wanted. He just wanted to see this miracle working power, some sort of theatrical demonstration, if you will. So he brought in the lame, the decrepit, the, uh, the, the, the people who were sick and, and what have you. He brought them into his palace there where Jesus was. And, and he asked Jesus, three times he asked Jesus to perform miracles for him. Jesus stood there silent. In fact, Desire of Ages tells us this, that Pilate told Jesus, I'm sorry, Herod told Jesus, if thou canst work miracles for others... Work them now for thine own good, and it will serve thee a good purpose. Did Jesus come into this world for his own good? He didn't come there to satisfy himself. He didn't come there to make himself comfortable. If that were the case, he would never have come to this earth to start off with. Am I right? Now, why would he change all of a sudden right here in the last few hours of his life to satisfy his own comfort? Jesus was not there for that. He was not there to satisfy people's curiosity. He came to this world to save people from their sins, and Herod had rejected the prompting of the Holy Spirit in his life. God had spoken to Herod through the mouthpiece of John the Baptist, and Herod had hardened his heart to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, as Jesus stood before Herod, he had nothing to say to him. Whereas Pilate, on the other hand, Pilate was, it was a fresh conviction when Jesus stood before him. Pilate was coming through a fresh conviction, and so Jesus wanted to press that conviction home and work in harmony with the Holy Spirit. And so that's why Jesus spoke so much to uh, Pilate. But as he stood before Herod, he had nothing to say because Herod had received the truth. God had spoken to him those words of conviction, and he rejected them. Listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. God is not going to give you more information if you have not already acted on what he has given you. 
You cannot expect to grow in your spiritual understanding and in your spiritual walk with the Lord if you are not applying what he has already given you in your life. We see that with with Herod. And so Jesus just stands there. He has nothing to say to him. He's not going to cast his pearls before the swine. Desire of Ages, page 730, says this. But he had, Jesus had, no words for those who would but trample the truth under their unholy feet. I pray that when we find precious gems of truth in God's word, that they are instantly applied in our lives. Amen? Verse 11, the Bible goes on, and it says this, And Herod, with, uh, and Herod, with his men of war, set about him at naught, that is to despise him, and mocked him, and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. Let me ask you a question. What happens when a proud person is ignored by somebody? Good or bad? Does it make him happy? Right? Herod was a very proud person. And in fact, Desire of Ages tells us that Jesus, it would have been, it would have been easier for Herod to accept a direct rebuke from Jesus than it was for Herod to accept silence. It was such a rebuke to him for Jesus to not even acknowledge his presence. And so Herod went from having that tender heart, that compassionate heart, where he, as he looked at Jesus when he first came in, he saw this noble being, this son of God, if you will. He went from that to having the silent treatment that Jesus gave him. His heart began to harden until he denounced Jesus as an imposter. In just moments, his heart was changed from one of being convicted to being hardened by Satan. And so he puts gorgeous robes on Jesus. They mock him. Desire of Ages fills in the details here for us. Desire of Ages, page 731, says this, No sooner were these words spoken than a rush was made for Christ, the words that he denounced him as an imposter. No sooner were these words spoken than a rush was made for Christ. Like wild beasts, the crowd darted upon their prey. Jesus was dragged this way and that. Herod joining the mob in seeking to humiliate the Son of God. Had not the Roman soldiers interposed and forced back the maddened throng, the Savior would have been torn in pieces. That's the second time that's happened, by the way. When Jesus stood before the Jewish Sanhedrin, before he was even condemned in in any way, before he even stood before the civil authorities, they, they did the same thing to him. They're pulling him back and forth and buffeting him and spitting in his face. And the Roman guards had to interpose on what was taking place. They had to push the crowd back. Otherwise, Ellen White tells us that at the Sanhedrin, he would have been torn to pieces. Again, we see that same demonic fury being poured out upon the Son of God as Herod denounces him as an imposter and a heretic, even uh, joining in the promiscuous mob in the cruel, rough 
mistreatment of the Son of God. Yet, I want you to notice something fascinating. She continues. All that these wicked, corrupt soldiers helped on by Herod and the Jewish dignitaries could instigate was heaped upon the Savior. Yet, his divine patience failed not. Do you know what it's like to be rudely treated for something that you've never done? I don't know what it's like. I've never gone through that personally. I can't even imagine what it would be like. But here Jesus is. He's in his fourth trial, fifth trial. He has gone all night long without sleep. He's gone so long without food. He has poured out his heart in anguish uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been dragged from one place to another. He's been cruelly treated, hit, uh, crowns. I mean, it just all kinds of things have happened to him at this point. Physically speaking, he has been drained of his physical energy. Yet as he stands there, as he uh, is mocked by the crowd and even Herod himself, she tells us that his divine patience failed not. I asked you this morning, how's your patience? How is your patience? Listen, if I can't have patience with my dog, how in the world am I going to have patience when I'm being treated like this? If I can't have patience with my husband or my wife, how in the world am I going to have patience when I'm treated like this? If I can't have patience with my brother or sister at church who does something that I disagree with, how in the world am I going to have patience when I'm treated like this? Brother and sisters, the Bible describes to us that in the last days, those who go through the time of the mark of the beast, those who go through that time of great persecution in the last days, the Bible describes them in Revelation chapter 14 as here is the patience of the saints. We just kind of run right past that Bible passage and we go on to, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. And we pump our chest out saying, we're the ones that keep the commandments of God. What about the ones who are patient? Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something this morning. You can keep the commandments of God, but if you are not a patient person, if you don't have the patience of Jesus, you don't have heaven to look forward to. Because it's those who have the patience of Jesus that God has created in their hearts that will keep the law of God from love rather than an obligation. Here is the patience of the saints. And I look at this, I don't know about you, but I think, Lord, there is no way that I can do that. Are you all with me? I'm not the only one, I hope, anyways. There is no way, Lord, that I can do that. Not only was he verbally abused, he was physically abused. He was physically tired. He was drained, yet his patience failed not. You can be patient after having eight, nine, eight hours of sleep. But how are your patients when you haven't been sleeping? How is your patience when you haven't eaten? I know how I am. When I don't eat, I get very impatient. 
My tummy starts grumbling and I get very irritated very easily. The Lord has to change that in me. He has to change that in all of us so that we can have the patience of Jesus no matter what comes our way. This is not of human origin. This is something that God has to give to us. You can try a little harder and you can try a little harder, but you know what? You're going to fail at some point unless it's something that God gives to you. It's very interesting to me, as you read the book, Desire of Ages, she tells us something I missed the last time I read this chapter, read the chapter. I read it yesterday again to refresh it in my mind, and I came across this, and it just really struck me. She tells us that as the crowd were jeering and pulling on Jesus and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and doing all that stuff, the purple robe, and, and even Herod himself joining in on that, she says that as that was taking place, that there were people who came who wanted to disrespect Jesus in bowing down in a mocking worship to him. That there were people there who came, and as they made their way forward to mockingly worship Jesus, as they looked into his face, they had to turn back because they were afraid to mock the Son of God. When they saw a man who was patient in the most severe, under the most severe treatment, they were compelled, I cannot do this. I cannot mock this man. You see, these people were acquainted with religious hypocrisy. They were acquainted with men who professed one thing and did another, but there stood before them a man who was marvelously consistent in everything he did, that even in the midst of this mistreatment, he did not retaliate in any other way, and they dare not bow down in a mocking worship to this man. And they had to turn away and go away. That's a powerful witness, brothers and sisters. It is a powerful witness. And I believe that God's people in the last days will have this same type of witness. That it may not be what you say, but it may be how you act that turn people to the heart of Jesus. How is your patience? Let us be praying and saying, Lord, give me the patience of Jesus. I hasten on. Go with me to Mark, Mark chapter 15. Mark, the 15th chapter. Jesus stands now. It's his last trial. He's weary. He's tired. He's beaten down. The whole world seems to be against him at this point. Now he comes back before Pilate. As you can only imagine, Pilate was not very happy when he saw Jesus came back, not because it was Jesus, but because he did not want to make this decision. He was conflicted. His heart said one thing. His uh, pride said something else. His conscience was telling him, this is the son of God. You've got to release him. His pride was telling him, if you do that, you're going to lose all of your popularity. And so he was conflicted and pulled in both directions. And then he received a letter. You remember that letter? Who was that letter from? It was from his wife. And as he read that letter, there Jesus standing before him, the promiscuous crowd on the outside crying for the death of Jesus. As he there reads that letter, she says, have nothing to do with that just man. I have suffered much because of him tonight. And she saw in prophetic vision almost 
In that dream at night, she saw the whole scenario play out in Pilate's judgment hall. She saw Jesus come in. She saw the crying crowd for his death. She saw the vacillating Pilate, her own husband, going back and forth. And then she saw him condemn Jesus to death, an innocent man. And she woke up in a tear, a cold sweat. And she wrote that letter to her husband and it got there at just the right time. Have nothing to do with that just man. Praise the Lord for God women who don't fear to tell their husbands something that they need to hear in a loving way. Ah, he was even more conflicted at this point. What do I do? Demons in human form were whipping the crowd up into a satanic fury out in the court. Just 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 the sight of Jesus stirred them to a satanic fury as they cried out for the death of the Son of God. Three times Pilate appealed to their reason to try to help them understand that this man is an innocent man. He brought out Barabbas. Perhaps this would bring them some reason. He showed them Barabbas, a, a hardened criminal man who was a murderer. And he said, listen, you can pick one or the other, hoping against hope that they would see the difference between Barabbas and Jesus and choose Jesus. And it's almost like his heart hit the ground when they heard them say, Barabbas, Barabbas, what shall I do with this man? Crucify him. Why? What evil has he done? He was trying to reason with them over and over again, but you can't reason with a crazy person. These people were crazy. They had lost their minds. They had sold their souls to the devil. Pilate was trying to reason with them, but to no effect. And so the Bible says in verse 15, and so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas, a murderer, unto them, and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Did you catch that? And so Pilate, willing to content the people. You know, the Holy Spirit had spoken to Pilate. We saw that in our last study together. But of the two, Pilate was more willing to content the people than he was content the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, every day we are faced with the same choice that Pilate was faced with. Am I going to content the Holy Spirit or am I going to content the crowd, the people, the world that is pressing around me, trying to get me to do one thing, trying to get me to do another thing? God wants his people to have the character of Jesus. The world wants you to have the character of Satan. And there is this conflict that rages in our lives every day. And the question is, who are we going to be willing to content? Are we going to content the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Or are we going to content the promptings of the world drawing us away from Jesus? May we be found not as Pilate, but as Jesus. Amen? I want to encourage you to go home this afternoon and read the chapter in Desire of Ages in Pilate's Judgment Hall. There's so many details here that I just don't have time to go through. But notice what the Bible goes on to say in verse 17. The Bible says, And they clothed him with purple, and plaited a crown of thorns, and put it about his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they 
And they struck him. They smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon his face. And bowing their knees, they worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, it wasn't enough just to kill him. They had to mock him as well. When they mocked the Son of God, the creator of the world, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. Reminds me of a passage in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 3 where the Bible says, I gave my back to the smiters, my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. You think Jesus read this Bible passage? You think he knew it was applying to him? But did it keep him from doing what he did? He was so in love with you. He was so in love with the world that was on a collision course with destruction that he was willing to go through whatever it would take to save humanity. I'm glad I heard one amen. Amen? Desire of Ages says this. Desire of Ages, page 734, says, Satan led the cruel mob in its abuse of the Savior. Who led the mob? Satan. It was his purpose to provoke him to retaliation, if possible, or to drive him to perform a miracle to release himself and thus break up the plan of salvation. What was Satan trying to do? It was his purpose to what? What does he say? It was his purpose to to provoke him. And thus, as a result of provoking him to perform a miracle, to release himself, he would break up the plan of salvation. Did the devil provoke you this past week? How about this morning when you were getting ready for church? Listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. It is not humanity that is provoking you. It is the devil that is provoking you. And he was unsuccessful in interrupting the plan of salvation in provoking Jesus. He was unsuccessful. Somebody should say amen to that. But brothers and sisters, he's continuing to provoke humanity because he's trying to break up the plan of salvation in your life. And he knows that if he can provoke you to do something, to retaliate in some unchristlike, unsanctified way, that he can break the plan of salvation in your life, thus separating you from Jesus, the Son of God. It's not your husband, it's not your wife, it's not a family member, it's not a church member that's provoking you. Next time you are provoked to do something that is unchristlike, no, it is not that person who is provoking you, it is Satan who is provoking you. He's poking you and prodding you, trying to get you to do or say something that is un-Christ-like. She goes on and she says this, one stain upon his human life, one failure of his humanity to endure the terrible test, and the Lamb of God would have been an imperfect offering and the redemption of man a failure. Did did, did you catch that? It was hanging on a thread, if you will. Let me ask you a question. What do you think would have happened if Jesus went into these trials without the Garden of Gethsemane? What do you think would have happened if Jesus went into these trials without those nights that he had spent together with his heavenly Father? What do you think would have happened? 
when he was provoked, when he was prodded by the devil, when he heard those false accusations, when he, uh, when he endured all of the cruel mistreatment, what would have happened? I'll tell you what would have happened. He would have acted in an unconverted manner. But because Jesus was so tight with his heavenly father, because he had knitted that relationship together with him, because he breathed the atmosphere of heaven every day and all day long, because God was all in all in his life and there was no, uh, nothing else, when this time came, he did not fail. Somebody should say amen to that as well. Seems like it was such a delicate thing, but Jesus had a firm hold on our salvation. I don't think we can fully understand the temptation that Jesus went through to release himself from this persecution. Satan was tempting him to use his divinity. Do you have divinity? Then you've never been tempted the way Jesus has. He, is temp- he was tempted a hundred if not more fold than you are. He was being tempted to exercise his divine power to call uh, legions of angels from heaven to his rescue, to vaporize his enemies, to release himself from that suffering, from that separation that sin was uh, performing in his relationship with his heavenly father. That's what Jesus was tempted to do. And brothers and sisters, we have no idea what it's like to be tempted like that. Yet Jesus was miraculously patient and victorious. And if he could be patient and victorious under those circumstances, by God's grace, we can too. Another statement here from Desire of Ages, it says this. Since the Passover, listen to this description. description. Since the Passover supper his, with his disciples, he had taken neither food nor drink. He had agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane in conflict with satanic agencies. He had endured the anguish of the betrayal and had seen his disciples forsake him and flee. He had been taken to Annas, then to Caiaphas, then to Pilate. And from Pilate, he had been sent to Herod and then to Pilate again. From insult to renew insult, from mockery to mockery, twice tortured by the scourge. All that night, there had been scene after scene, and of a uh, a scene scene after scene of a character to try the soul of man to the utmost. Christ had not failed; he had spoken no word, but that tended to what glorify God. All through the disgraceful farce of a trial, he had borne himself with firmness and dignity. Don't we serve a miraculous Savior? His character was tried to the utmost, yet he maintained his firmness and dignity. Reminds me of the passage we read in John chapter 14 and verse 30 where the Bible says, Jesus talking here, hereafter shall I not talk much with you for the prince of this world cometh. And what does he say? What does he say? He has nothing in me. Nothing in me. That means that when Satan came to try to tempt Jesus to provoke him, there was nothing there for Satan to pull on. There was no foothold of Satan in the heart of Jesus in that severe treatment that he went through. There was nothing there for him. 
And so all that Jesus could respond was in a Christ-like and loving way. He, all he could do was pour out agape love out of his heart to those people who whacked him in the head with a reed, who jammed those crown of thorns into his head, who put that robe around him and mockingly worshipped him. All that could come out of his heart to those people was agape love. I don't think we understand it. But we need to meditate on it more. Reminds me of what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 11, that we are to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what Jesus was in the trials that he went through. He was dead to sin. There was no sin in his life, but he was alive to his father's call and his father's will in his life. And I don't know if you remember the quote, but we read, as we read this passage, where Ellen White tells us that those who, who hope to be saved one day, that this must be their experience that the devil comes and has no hold in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, the Bible tells us, for even here unto where you call, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should what? Follow in his steps. What kind of example did he leave us? He left us an example of how we ought to act when we are suffering. That's specific. He gave us an example of how we ought to act when we are suffering in, uh, uh, you know, inhumanity and uh, unfairness. He gave us an example of how we ought to act in those situations. And it goes on, and it says, Who did not sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, what did he do? He reviled not. Again, who, when he suffered, he what? Threatened not, but committed himself to him that what? Judges righteously. Are you following the lamb wherever he goes? Are you following him into the trials? Not just standing with him on the mountainside when he's feeding the 5,000 and doing all these miraculous miracles. There are lots of people that followed Jesus when things were going good. But everybody scattered when things were going bad. Let us never leave the side of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I leave you with one last statement here before we close. Review and Herald, April 14th of 1896, it says this. The forces of darkness will unite against or unite with human agents who have given themselves into the control of Satan. And the same scenes, if you're falling asleep, wake up now. And the same scenes which were exhibited at the trial, rejection, and crucifixion of Christ will be revived. Did you catch that? Listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. What we have just read in the six trials of Christ is what is going to happen in the future to God's people. We read it as though it's some sort of cute narrative that makes us have warm, fuzzy feelings in our hearts about what Jesus has done for us. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, I'm glad that it gives you warm, fuzzy feelings to see that he was willing to go through all of that mistreatment so that you could be saved. But brothers and sisters, what he was really doing is he was giving you an example so that when your trial comes, you would follow him instead of what humanity might do in that trial. Forces of darkness will unite 
with human agencies. And the trials and the rejection and the crucifixion of Christ will be revived against God's people. Now, she goes on and she says this. Though, uh, through yielding to satanic influences, men will be transformed into fiends. And those who were created in the image of God, who were formed to honor and glorify their creator, will become the habitation of dragons. And Satan will see an apostate race in an apostate race, his masterpiece of evil. What is his masterpiece of evil? Men who reflect his own image. As I read this quote this morning in preparation for today, I couldn't help but be overwhelmed by emotion. As tears came to my eyes, I prayed and I said, Lord, help us. Satan's ultimate goal, his masterpiece of creation, is to have you reflect his image. That's what he wants. And in the last days, brothers and sisters, it does not matter what you know theoretically. I've told you this I don't know how many times, and I'm going to keep telling you this. In the last days, what's going to matter is whose image do you have? There are going to be a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who have the knowledge, but they have the image of Satan. They have all of the theory right inside of their heads, but they did not give themselves wholeheartedly to God in a full, total heart surrender. Not my will, but thine be done. God wants to impress his image in the lives of his people. Satan wants to put his image in the lives of the world, and we have to choose whose image we will reflect. We will either be possessed by a demonic power or we will be possessed by a heavenly power. You can't have it one way or both ways. You have to choose one way or the other. I prayed and I said, Lord, help us. I don't want to have a masterpiece of evil in my life reflecting the image of Satan. I want the masterpiece to be that God has duplicated his character in my life. Not because of anything that I have done, but everything because of what he has done. So I ask you this morning, as you reflect on your own life, whose image do you reflect more of? And I want to encourage you to not be discouraged by the answer that you might find. It's good to do a little self-reflection every now and then. The good news is we still have time. Amen? The Lord is tarrying because he is not willing that any man should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The good news is that we have time. We have time for the Lord to continue to impress the image of Jesus in our lives. I believe that we should be wise and ask God to reveal to us the weaknesses in our character so that we can make those weaknesses a strength, right? We talked about this before. So that when the devil comes to buffet me in that time of trial and temptation in the crisis at the close, he will find nothing in me. That all that will come out is the lovely character and love of Jesus, the atmosphere of heaven.
Today, I want to ask you, is there something in your life that is keeping you from making that full surrender to the Lord? I don't know what it is. I don't have telepathic powers, and I'm glad that I don't. But is there something in your life that is keeping you from, that's limiting you from God being able to continue that beautiful work of sanctification in your life, making you into the image of Jesus? How many of you want that experience? Lord, give me that experience. Why don't you stand and let the Lord know? Father, I want that experience. I want that experience, Lord, of having the character of Jesus. I can't do it on my own. I've tried over and over again, and it's just not helping me. Lord, I have the theory of knowledge. I have the theory of truth, but I want the heart of truth. But this morning, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I ask you, is there something in your life that is keeping you from going all the way with God? Is there some little part of your heart that is not completely surrendered to him? Keep holding back on it. I don't know what that is, but I'm pretty sure that you do because as the Holy Spirit speaks to me, I know that he speaks to you as well, convicting you and convicting me of areas where we need to improve. And so this morning with your head bowed and eyes closed, if there is somebody that wants to surrender that little part of their hearts that they've been holding back, that thing in your life, you know what it is. I want to ask you if you want to make that surrender to the Lord to go ahead and come on forward and let the Lord know, Father, I'm giving it to you. Go ahead, come on up. Don't be like Pilate who cared about what other people thought, but just stick with what the Holy Spirit is asking you to do. If the Holy Spirit's not asking you to do it, don't do it. But if he is, I'm asking you to come forward. Let the Holy Spirit know. Let God know, Father, I'm surrendering this thing to you. Uh, You know what it is. You know why it is holding me back, and I don't want it to hold me back any longer. I'm giving it to you, Lord. It's time for us to stop making excuses and to start making changes. We can point fingers. We can make excuses. My parents did this, and -and so-and-so did that, and uh, I have this deficiency and that deficiency and this health challenge and that health. It is time for us to stop making excuses and start making changes in our lives. And through the power of God, we can become like Jesus. Amen? Father, you know our hearts. They are desperately wicked. And Lord, there is no way that we are ready to meet this trial. There is some significant growth that needs to happen in our lives. Father, I pray that you would put your arms of love around this community of faith, this family. That you would unite us in a way that we have never been united before that the Holy Spirit would break down barriers in our lives, that he would mend wounds that have festered for years, that he would mend relationships that have been broken, that we would be willing, Lord, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that nothing would consume us more 
than doing your will and your will alone. Father, as we look at Jesus, we want to be like him. We want to have that patience, that love that just seeps out of us no matter what happens in our lives. As the song goes that we sang today, that Jesus emptied himself of all but love. There was no depth, no no bottom to the amount of love that Jesus had for us. Father, give us that same experience, I pray. And for those of us, Lord, that are here in the front with specific burdens on our hearts, I pray that you would take those burdens away as we surrender that corner of our heart that we've been holding back for a while. You know what it is, Lord. You know the struggle that we have there. But Father, we want to go all the way with Jesus, all the way my Savior leads me. What is there to lose? There's everything to gain. And Lord, for those of us that are standing, I pray that we will not be throwing darts into the back and front, but that we would uplift them in prayer as brothers and sisters who want to know their Savior better. Thank you, Father. Thank you for what you are doing in our lives. Thank you for what you're doing in this church. And thank you for the way that you're going to use us as you use Jesus. For it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot audioverse.org.